Swivel. Since we published our last Resolve episode in December 2021, the COVID-19 pandemic in Australia has taken a dramatic turn, pushing our healthcare system to breaking point. We started relaying to them, like, you know, he's still not breathing, he's still not moving, explaining to her that Noel's the midwife and this baby needs urgent medical attention. About seven or eight minutes on the phone call and she, she just still couldn't find an ambulance to, to dispatch and she still couldn't provide us with an ETA. I think Mel and I just sort of looked at each other and we knew that we had to get him to a hospital. With a highly vaccinated population and 18 months to prepare, the government assured us that Australia was ready to open up and finally start living with COVID. That was until the Omicron variant arrived on the scene. New quarantine rules for Australians who've been in South Africa over concerns about the new Omicron coronavirus variant. The first cases of the new Omicron COVID strain have been confirmed in New South Wales. Thousands of people who have been forced to wait in queues for there their PCR tests. There were 11,201 cases in New South Wales, 3,767 in Victoria. The hospital system is coping very, very well. The availability of rapid antigen tests is fast becoming an issue for governments across more than 20,000 cases today and six deaths. Hospitalisations now, there are now 832 people in hospital with COVID. The rampant COVID. spread of the virus putting increasing pressure on hospitals. We don't need to be instilling fear in the community, but hope and optimism. And our health system is the strongest in the nation. Um, uh, it is not... 330,000 have Every day, the virus. politicians tell us that our hospital system is coping with the Omicron surge, uh, but our health workers... They're saying otherwise, exhausted, overworked and pushed to breaking point. Victoria's hospital system is moving to code brown emergency. Prime Minister has admitted he was blindsided by the Omicron variant. More than a million Aussies have now caught COVID. Now, just one month later, Australia's healthcare system is buckling under the pressure. Victorian hospitals are operating at emergency levels. Ambulance wait times are at an all-time high. And more than 10,000 healthcare workers across the country are currently off work due to COVID-19 infection or exposure. From Swivel Media, I'm Amanda Reedy, and this is Resolve, stories from a stop-start nation. In this episode, we speak with frustrated healthcare workers and a young father who experienced the failing system firsthand. We start in New South Wales, where there are currently over 300,000 active COVID cases. Hospitalisation numbers are approaching 3,000. And calls to triple zero have topped record numbers as high as 5,000 calls in a single day. Our first guest never expected to be one of those calls. In early January 2022, Alex Moyer and his wife Mel were eagerly expecting their second child. Mel, a trained midwife, has delivered plenty of babies, but she wasn't expecting to have to deliver her own. About 5am on um, Sunday, January 2nd, Melanie, my wife, woke me up to tell me her her waters had broken and she um, had the first contraction. We knew that we had everything prepared, ready to go to hospital and we were planning to labour at home as long as um, Melanie felt comfortable because that's the, that's the health advice, really. Labour as long as you can in the, 
in an environment where you feel comfortable and then go into the hospital. Pretty quickly after that, things started to ramp up. Contractions intensity really ramped up and then the duration between contractions was just getting, you know, shorter and shorter and shorter. But we still felt like, you know, we had time to get to the hospital. She was in the shower at this stage. And I said, okay, you know, it's time to go to the hospital. I had helped her out of the shower, went to get her a towel, came back and Ethan's head was out, um, our baby. Mel, who's a trained midwife, said, get more towels. So I ran, I got more towels, and by the time I got the towels on the floor, Ethan came out in one contraction and Mel caught him, and that was about 6 a.m. So from waters breaking to Ethan being born was, you know, an hour. Uh, It's incredibly rapid labor. But still, we had just given birth, and if that had been the end of the story, it would have been great. You know, if Ethan had to come out kicking and screaming and crying, it just would have been, you know, really cool. But Ethan came out in really bad condition. He was um, white as a ghost. He just had no blood circulation or color. He wasn't really breathing, and he wasn't moving. He was like a rag doll. Mel's midwifery skills kicked in, and she started stimulating baby Ethan to encourage him to breathe but he was still unresponsive. And that's when we really started to worry that something was really, really wrong. And I think that's when Mel started to panic as well. Alex immediately called triple zero while Mel kept working on Ethan. We started relaying to them like, you know, he's still not breathing, he's still not moving, explaining to her that Mel's the midwife and this baby needs urgent medical attention about seven or eight minutes on the phone call and we, she, she just still couldn't find an ambulance to, to dispatch and she still couldn't provide us with an ETA. I think Mel and I just sort of looked at each other and we knew that we had to get him to a hospital and so that's when we decided to drive in ourselves. That's certainly not the safest way to transport a newborn, especially one that's still connected to the placenta. And so I strapped Mel in the car. She, the baby was on her chest and she started giving CPR to, the, to Ethan on the way to the hospital, which is, I think it's usually about a 10 minute drive. The midwife met us on the ground and rushed us up to the delivery ward and then they said he was a, a code blue. Over the next few hours, the doctors and nurses at the Randwick Hospital for Women worked tirelessly to save baby Ethan's life. That's the scariest moment where we didn't know whether he was going to you know, live or die because I kept saying, is he going to be okay? Is he going to be okay? And they weren't really giving me a confirmation because they just didn't know what was wrong. They um, intubated him, put him on a respirator, gave him a blood transfusion, put him cold therapy. After two or three hours, his vital stabilized. But we still had to you know, spend the next week in, in NICU where Ethan made incredible recovery thanks to some brilliant medical care from the nurses, the midwives, the doctors, who also provided us with tremendous emotional and mental support during that time. For Mel and Alex, this harrowing ordeal was granted a happy ending, but Alex felt the need to speak out publicly about the experience, knowing that not everyone in their situation would have been so lucky. We couldn't get an ambulance. Our son was dying on the floor and we couldn't get an ambulance. And if if Mel hadn't been a midwife and if we had waited for an ambulance, Ethan very likely might have died. New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet has insisted the state's healthcare system, although under pressure, is keeping up with demand. We are in a good position. We're at 95% vaccination rate here in New South Wales. 
with close to 50% of people who are eligible for a booster going out and getting a booster. That's a fantastic thing. That ensures we keep people safe despite the pressure on our health system. It remains strong and our health workers continue to do an inspiring and amazing job in keeping people safe. But since the event, Alex has spoken directly to paramedics and other healthcare workers across the state who tell a very different story. Talking to paramedics and they were highlighting that sometimes they were doing what's called a lights and sirens run, which is where they're running full ball with lights and sirens to get to a call out as quickly as possible. And sometimes the closest ambulance was an hour away. I mean, that's a pretty stressful drive, but then the family on the waiting end, knowing that you've got an ambulance that's going full tilt out of their way to get to you, but they're still an hour away. With Alex and Mel's story making national headlines, Premier Parate got in contact directly with the couple. Dominic didn't really give any excuses, which I appreciated. He recognised that the system had let our family down and he apologised. We said, we're actually not after an apology. We do really appreciate it, obviously, but we want the situation to be addressed and really make sure these healthcare workers are getting more support. What else can be done to help them get through this? But the other eye-opening thing was, for me was discussions I've been having with different people about how this it's not just a, a result of this pandemic. It's been ongoing for several years now and the pandemic is just highlighting the issue. And I think it's, it's just like a double-edged sword for them because they're never, they're never going to not try to meet demand. They're never not going to try to save as many people as they can, to look after as many people as they can. But you've just got an incredibly committed bunch of individuals. But they're just going to burn out and it doesn't seem like we're going to fix the system until it breaks. So what went wrong? And why, when we've had so much time to prepare, is our healthcare system and our hospitals so short-staffed? The Acting Secretary of the New South Wales Nurses and Midwife Association, Michael Waits, says the answer is quite simple, if not enraging. Our opinion and the lived experience of our members is that the hospital system is in crisis at the moment. And this is a crisis that is wholly and solely of the government's making, not only over the last few months as we've struggled with Delta and the last few weeks as we've struggled with Omicron, but actually the staffing levels in the public health system have been dire for years now. Over the last 10 or 15 years, there's been emerging evidence that there is a sweet spot over the number of registered nurses that you have on shift compared to the number of patients in a ward or unit. Now that ratio varies depending on the ward type. Uh, so you might have a high ratio of one to one in, a, in an ICU. You might have one to four in adult medical surgical ward. You also need about 80% of those registered nurses to be highly educated registered nurses. That evidence has been uh, growing over the years to show that ratios improves the patient experience, but most importantly, decreases the morbidity and mortality of patients in our healthcare system. So when you drop below 80%, and when you drop below having one to four on a medical surgical ward, you've got an increased chance of coming out of hospital with something you didn't go in with, like pneumonia or urinary tract infection or bed sores, and you've got a higher chance of dying. We say to the government that that should be assessed on a shift-by-shift basis. 
they say no. Actually, it should be assessed on over the week and it doesn't have to be one to four, it doesn't have to be 80% RN. And the only way that we could possibly get changes like that in New South Wales would be for nurses and midwives to trade off pay rise, shift penalties, annual leave loading, things like that. That's the chronic situation that we've been in. For, for 10 years now, we've been saying we need shift by shift nurse to patient ratios uh, across the system and the government has simply refused to do so. New South Wales has recorded its deadliest day with 36 deaths. Hospitalisations are climbing. And for some healthcare workers, the dangerous situation is just too much to bear. Amy Holverson, a former nurse at Sydney's Westmead Hospital, quit her beloved profession just last week and attended a protest of around 60 ICU nurses outside of the hospital, asking the government to take immediate action. She spoke with the Today Show shortly after. We have no end in sight and we are so sick of being told that we're okay by the people in charge. From the top ranks, the entire government, the entire system, we are not okay, we're not coping. For me personally, having been out of the system for the last week, I've looked at it and it's it's really shocking to see the levels of reporting that are going back. I'm getting a lot of people saying, I'm so sorry it came to this, but I'm not getting anyone down here actually saying, what can we do to help? So you need to come down here and actually speak to some of these people because there's a lot of people reaching out to you to tell you that you're not okay. Your system is broken and people need this healthcare system. When you have an unsafe workplace, when you have unreasonable workloads for healthcare professionals, then eventually they burn out and they leave. And so we're seeing massive vacancies across the state prior to COVID. And between Delta and Omicron, We've had nurses resign. We've had nurses just burn out, can no longer cope, walk away from the system. We see this in particular within our ICU units. Prior to COVID, they were recognising that a combination of being short-staffed and being exceedingly busy all of the time, that the senior nurses were burning out and leaving and replaced by junior nurses. So the numbers were okay, but the skill mix was problematic. Uh, and what that means is that your capacity to train someone and bring them up to speed starts to diminish when you have that shifted skill mix. I do want to flag that your listeners hearing this will possibly be quite alarmed with the picture we're painting. And I want to assure people that if they present to a New South Wales hospital today, the nurses and doctors and the midwives and the other healthcare professionals are going to do their absolute utmost to make sure that you get the best possible care you can. And when we compare where we're at compared to other nations, you're going to be okay. But we also know that the level of care that's been provided in the hospitals at the moment is well below where it should be. We've got two nurses on a ward of 30 patients. Uh, we've got three midwives in a birthing unit of 18 rooms. It's just not safe. Many of those on the front line are worried about speaking out publicly, but they still want their stories heard. We spoke with a young nurse in Victoria working on a COVID ward. She asked to remain anonymous, so we altered her voice to protect her identity. And for the purposes of the interview, we'll call her Beck. We can have about 48 patients on the ward at one time. And with Omicron and the numbers increasing, you know, that demand is just increasing. It's really, really hard. You have your days where there are good days and there's bad days. I've had five to six patients at times when the ratio is meant to be one to three. 
my friends told me the other day that they had seven patients on a day shift, which is very hard. So I do come in feeling anxious, but you do what you need to do. And sometimes you're really tired and you want to call in sick, but you're not going to do that to the team that you work for because you know how hard it is being right now. Beck can't remember the last time she worked a shift with the recommended nurse-to-patient ratio in place due to the chronic short-staffing issues her hospital is experiencing. When I would have one to four, that would mean I can spend about two hours all up with each patient because the shifts are eight hours long. So you can spend two hours with each patient. Obviously, you would change that depending on how sick someone is. But you can't do that when you have one to five. You know, the time you can spend with them is less and less. And you have so much to do that you forget about that patient that wants a cup of tea. And you forget that that patient asks for some pain relief. So it changes the whole care dynamic between the nurse and the patient. And, you know, it's not just nurses, the doctors are so busy too that they can't review a patient until later in the afternoon, even though the patient asks, can I see the doctor at 9am? And it's like, no, because we're so busy that they're not going to be able to make it here on time, you know? So it just changes the whole dynamics between what, what I used to do with my care and what I do now. But as nurses, we learn to build that resilience and we learn to adapt to an ever-changing environment. But sometimes it means that one person may be somewhat neglected, but you're still there for them. With the long hours, the health risk, and the relentless workload, there is also the emotional strain that takes its toll when working on a COVID ward. With COVID, patients can deteriorate so quickly. Someone that you thought was going to be fine, they just deteriorate so quickly and there's nothing you can do. You have to make them palliative because you've done everything you can and there's nothing more that you can do for them, no more treatments that you can try because you've exhausted everything. So it's really hard when, you know, you lose a patient to COVID, especially if you thought they were going to be fine. Um... And it just gets really hard with the families as well because, you know, the families are trying to be understanding, but they're also, like you said a few days ago, they were doing fine and they would be discharged in a week. And it's like, things change. I I never make any promises to my patients or the families because that can get you in a really, really difficult position when it doesn't go the way you think it will. So... It's definitely emotional every time you lose a patient. It it can be really, really hard, but it's the reality of our job. Seeing up close what COVID is capable of, Beck also worries about getting the virus. I don't want to catch COVID. I don't want to bring it home to my family. I don't want to bring it home to my loved ones. It is scary. There's always that one chance that a little bit of the virus gets through the mask. I'm scared to get it, but I also feel somewhat protected because of what we're all wearing on the ward. But I am scared of getting it because that means that I need to isolate and it also means that I can't go to work for seven days. And that then puts a strain on the people that I work with even more. But for Beck, like so many healthcare workers, she got into this profession to help people. I've always wanted to care for people more than myself gave me the opportunity to make a difference in someone's life, 
to help them when they're in the most vulnerable state, it just it really fulfills me that I'm able to do that for them. Although it's unlikely the government can solve the staffing crisis immediately, Michael believes there are plenty of things they could be doing to improve conditions. I think what's really needed is a positive act of good faith by the state government in New South Wales to say, we recognise what you've gone through and we undertake to improve the staffing levels once we're through this. We know the resources aren't there now, but there's no reason why this government couldn't turn around and say, actually, shift by shift, nurse to patient ratios, that will make your working lives better in the future. Please stay with us. Hang on, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. We know that for ICU nurses, we've been in negotiations with the Minister for Health to bring in their equivalent of better staffing levels. And there's at least been an acknowledgement that there has to be a solution to what's going on now, but we're still waiting for, for that solution. So to turn around to say to ICU nurses, yep, we're going to introduce the standards, uh, the professional standards, so that your staffing levels are safe, I think that would give them the hope to go on. And I think, too, that, you know, improving nurses' pay, at the moment, a lot of our members are saying that there should be a COVID payment. There should be a payment and a bonus pay for doing what we're doing. Uh, a, A resolution that we'll be debating on the floor of Committee of Delegates next Tuesday when all of our member leaders come together is this idea that perhaps we approach the federal government to say any overtime that's been worked by healthcare workers during COVID should be tax free. In Victoria, the code brown status means that resources will be more easily deployed to those areas under most arrests. It will see the Australian Defence Force brought in to drive ambulances and help with planning. But it also means that already exhausted healthcare workers could have their leave cancelled without warning. And as Beck knows firsthand, many workers are approaching burnout. I wouldn't say we're all burnt out. We can all agree that we could be on the way to burnout. A lot of us are very tired. It's really hard to try to find the light at the end of the tunnel right now. But for how much longer can we keep relying on a dedicated but exhausted and emaciated workforce? Only time will tell. And no doubt the consequences will be a matter of life and death. Alex Moyer hopes this won't need to be the case. I don't ever want to see a story like ours with the tragic ending for the system to start to get the support it needs. We've had our close call. There have been so many others with close calls lately. We should act now before it breaks. In the coming episodes, we'll dive deeper into the issues currently facing our healthcare system when we take a closer look at aged care and the emergency services. Resolve is a production of Swivel Media. It's produced by me, Amanda Reedy, Lauren Fitzgerald, and our executive producer is Scotty Allen. This episode was mixed by Rob Clark, and our show artwork is by Mark Osmundi. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and leave a positive rating and review to help others find our show. Visit swivelmedia.com, that's swivel with an O, for details on all of our shows. And find us on social media for updates on new releases. Swivel.